Today we are going to read Job 1, 6 through 22. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present them before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That is there, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and possessions have have increased in the land? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the, Ch- the Chaldeans formed the three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was talking, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their ha- oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and all and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Good morning. My name is Matt. We are in the middle of a series, as you'll see behind me in a moment, called Questioning Christianity, where we are looking at six big pictures that not only Christians ask and seek to answer from God's Word, but really questions that everyone has to answer somehow. And even by choosing to punt on these questions and not answer them, is itself an answer? Is itself is forming a worldview? And as has been already mentioned, this morning we come to the topic of pain and suffering. And you all know that you don't have to scroll through your daily news feed to understand that our world is filled with pain and suffering. You are experiencing or have recently experienced and or will experience pain and suffering. And for this to be really practical for you this morning, I don't want you to just think about like, pain and suffering as a concept, but I want you to think about what is it that I am experiencing right now, and what is God doing with that? I think one of the hard things about pain is that it comes in all these layers, I guess, that very often you may have a physical pain or suffering like an injury or disease or chronic pain or even death. And that layers on top of the physical experience, a, an emotional experience, a psychological experience. You experience things like anxiety, fear, depression, anger, 
grief, maybe bargaining with God. There are thoughts that go through your head, um, everything from like, I'm a failure to like, this is a betrayal, it's a loss, it's an insecurity. There's relational suffering. Some of you are going through this now or have, um, whether it's just as simple as like conflict at work or conflict in your home, um, to divorce, to all kinds of things, abuse, slander. We experience these interrelationally. There is, uh, there's natural suffering. Like we, we often, this is the kind of stuff that does hit the news with floodings and earthquakes and tsunamis and tornadoes and fires here in Colorado and, and all these things. And in society, just in general, it's like we look out there and there's crime and there's addiction and there's uh, racism and rioting and injustice. And point being, um, I think the Eastern religions that say that pain is just an illusion, that's one of the first conclusions I would want you to dismiss because you know the experience that you feel, the, the physical pain, the emotional pain, the thoughts, the, the just crushing weight maybe that some of you are carrying even this morning. So this morning we're going to talk about pain and the, the, the four points that we're going to talk about are number one, the reality of suffering, number two, reactions to suffering, number three, reasons for suffering, and number four, resources for suffering. In the greatest twist of fate ever, we're already done with point one because we just talked about the reality of suffering, so we're already to point two. One of the reasons that we're talking about this as one of the six key questions is not only the universality of pain and suffering, the fact that you all experience it in many of these layers. There's no one sitting there like, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't see pain and suffering in our society or I don't experience it. You do. That's the reality of suffering. But I think as others have concluded, modern Western people, like us, are some of the most ill-equipped people in the history of the world to handle pain and suffering well. I want you to just think for a moment about the standard, again, modern Western narrative that people are telling themselves that undergirds their lives, things that we've already talked about, about origin, identity, purpose, like how they define what's good and bad in life. And I think when you begin with naturalistic evolution and just say, like, we're here by complete chance, there is no reason, there is no purpose. So we've kind of talked these last few weeks how people that are concluding there is no ultimate purpose to which I need to align my life. So I'm on this free journey to kind of pick my own purpose. I'm on this journey to decide for myself what's good and what's bad. And as we saw the last couple of weeks, as we do that, that kind of self-discovery, what we end up saying is that the purpose of life is something like this. It's to live a happy and healthy life, to be a basically good person. And so we define life's purpose in terms of health and happiness and autonomy, like freedom to do what I want to do. And immediately you see the problem with pain because pain enters the picture, suffering enters the picture, and it just crushes our purpose. Because if life is about being healthy, we are not healthy on so many levels. And if life is about being happy, suffering comes in and it takes away things that we treasure and it imposes on us like a new rigid and hard life and therefore we react, point two. And I want to just kind of go through a couple basic ways that we tend to react. This is an oversimplification, but modern Western secular people tend to react to suffering by either avoiding it 
or fixing it. It's like we try to do everything we can and spend all kinds of money and have all kinds of systems and processes to avoid it in the first place. And when it comes, we're like, just tell me what I got to do. Tell me what's the pill, either literally the pill or the magic pill that I take to make this go away. By contrast, again, an oversimplification, but the Eastern or Stoic way of handling it is you just, you accept it. You embrace it. So the first reaction, and I'm going to talk about that one first. The first reaction, just quickly overviewing, the first reaction to suffering is there's, there's a whole worldview. There's a bunch of worldviews that say when that suffering comes, you heroically endure it. Okay, we understand human culture started in the East. Okay, that's where life started. You know, Mesopotamia spread from there. And historically, human beings understood life is hard. Life is painful. It's filled with suffering. It's filled with futility. It ends in death. You just deal with it. Um, one of the articles I refer to often is this article by Pico Iyer in the New York Times called The Value of Suffering. Pico Iyer, just you know a little bit about him, he was born in Oxford, England to Indian parents, and he married a Japanese woman and lived for a long period of time in Japan. So that'll, that'll make sense of what I'm about to say. So he writes this, I'll do my best and I'll stick it out and it can't be helped are the phrases you hear every hour in Japan. When a tsunami claimed thousands of lives north of Tokyo two years ago, I heard much more lamentation and panic in California than among the people I know around Kyoto. My neighbors aren't formal philosophers, but much in the texture of their lives, they're used to the national worship of things falling away in autumn the blaze of cherry blossoms followed by their very quick departure, the Issa-like poems on which they're schooled, speaks for an old culture's training in saying goodbye to things and putting delight and beauty within a frame. And he's speaking for billions of people who process pain and suffering that way. They're like just stiff upper lip. Like he says, do my best, stick it out, because life is hard. Going back to this more Western way, instead of heroically enduring it, we tend to say, try to avoid it or fix it. And I don't have to say a whole lot about that, but we just, like, our snap judgment is like, how do I make this go away? What do I need to do? What do I need to say? What's the lesson I'm supposed to learn to just make this all go away? And whether you're coming from a stick it out, endure, embrace it, or a avoid it, and then fix it as fast as you can. I think both of these groups, both of these worldviews come together when the pain doesn't stop. Because when the pain is relentless, and again, that could be physical, that could be emotional, that could be cognitive, psychological, it could be any of these layers of pain, we come together and we ask why, right? Why me? Why this? What's the point of this suffering? Now, we don't do this with all kinds of suffering. You know, if you're, if you're building something and you smash your thumb with a hammer, you're not sitting there like, why me? You know, what is, what is the universe trying to tell me? Because you understand, like, I smashed my thumb with a hammer. It's like over that quickly. Or a lot of the conflict that we have where it's just a quick argument like, I disagreed with my spouse, I disagreed with this friend, and then it's, it's over and it's already reconciled within hours or a couple days. We may not be like, why? But, but you know it's not the same with cancer or 
chronic pain or divorce or the loss of a child or getting unexpectedly fired or having your home burned down. See, those, those bigger things or those things that just keep going and going and going and there is no obvious end in sight, we do start to ask more and more questions around why. Why is this happening? What is, what is God or what is the universe trying to tell me? And by the way, the story that we read this morning, if you were to flip a couple pages to chapter 3, and six times in chapter 3, he asks, Why? This is a primitive man. See, we intuitively look for meaning. We intuitively, desperately need for there to be a reason or reasons why. Like the the great word is like a telos that explains everything. It's like, ah, that makes sense of this suffering. And, And you know that if you're suffering with meaning and purpose... It's very different than seemingly pointless suffering. Like when you're having a baby, um, and I've been there for the birth of all three of my children, I understand that is a painful experience, but you get a baby at the end. It is a very different experience, and we've had friends that, that knew they had miscarried and still had to deliver a baby, and it's a completely different experience. And not that many of you have had that exact experience, but you know what I'm talking about. There's, there's the, the running of a half marathon, and your lungs are burning, and you've trained, and your legs hurt, and things ache, and you're like, but there's this goal. There's this achievement. There's a purpose. There's a meaning to this pain versus just like I'm running and running and running and running and running on a treadmill, and I'm getting nowhere, but I have to keep running, and I don't understand why. Richard mentioned this fourth category, which I'll just touch on, which is a Christian response. By the way, I'm not saying these other responses are wrong. I do think they're reductionist. I think they take something that's very complex, has a lot of nuance to it, and just say, like, just do this. Just fix it. Just avoid it. Just embrace it. Just ask why. The Bible gives us this fourth category of reacting to pain and suffering, which is the word that Richard used, lament. One person said, lament is weeping with words. It is a protest. It's a howl. It's a complaint. In that psalm that we read together, and I would direct you to another psalm like 80, where you're like, man, is this in Scripture? That someone that, that, that has the Spirit of God and is worshiping God is saying some of the things that he's saying? Like, are you allowed to pray that way and complain that way back to God and kind of demand answers But I want you to notice a lament is neither clamming up nor blowing up. We often react one of those two ways of just like, fine, I'll just, I'll hold all the pain inside or just suddenly explode at God. It's neither of those, but it is questioning without quitting is another way I like to think of it. It's not like I'm I'm resigned against you, God. I quit. I'm done. But it is asking questions. But here's a key. Lament is that kicking and screaming, that questioning, that fear, that frustration, because God already knows what you feel anyway. Like, it's really okay to respectfully cry out to God and say, God, you know my frame, you know I'm just dust, I'm weak, um, and I just don't understand what you're doing, but here's the key, there's still trust, there's still hope. Lament is taking that pain and being human with it. God, this hurts, and I would love to know a reason. I would love for you to teach me a lesson. And you ever do that? Like, okay, God, what's the lesson? Like, just, just point me to the lesson I'm supposed to learn, and then this will all go away, right? And we, we so quickly want to get to that. But the lament is, 
all of that plus God, I'm hanging on to you, and ultimately you are holding on to me. So those are reactions. Now, I think this is important to talk about reasons. Number three, reasons for suffering. And again, I want to just touch on some high points of what some other worldviews say. Here's the reason for suffering, beginning with many, many in our culture today would say there is no purpose. Okay? And I think this accounts for a lot of the stress and anxiety and frustration and resentment and division in our culture is that people are suffering. People see the pain. They see the conflict. They see the injustice. And they're like, this is just empty and futile and foolish and pointless. There is no reason for this. And again, our, our nature, because we're made in the image of God, we, we demand, we, we need to know why is this happening? What is the meaning? What is the purpose? And when we've concluded, like the nihilists, that there is no good reason for pain and suffering, life becomes very difficult. And by the way, I want you to notice, it's not that people believe there are reasons that I just haven't discerned yet. It's a whole worldview that says there isn't a reason, there can't be a reason. Why can't there be a reason? Well, because again, naturalistic evolution, there is no one directing this. Like we're just, we're here by some happy accident and there is no ultimate purpose of life. We're just here, just is. And pain is just a part of that existence. So how can I look outside myself and find any long-term like spiritual reference point that directs me to what's going on. Charles Taylor called it the imminent frame. Imminent meaning like near and here and now. He's like, we, we live in this imminent frame and we've cut ourselves off from the transcendent. So we're looking at this imminent thing and we're like, there is no purpose for suffering. There's only despair and hopelessness. Other people will say it's karma. And I'll use that two ways. There's the colloquial way of seeing someone like get what's coming to them. And you're like, karma, right? You were mistreating someone else and it came back to you. The karmic traditions are essentially the belief in reincarnation. Many Eastern religions hold to this, that like basically if you've done good in your life, you're going to come back around and your life is going to be filled with blessing. Not, not perfection, but you'll have a blessed life because you did good. If you're sitting there in your circumstance right now and you're suffering and it's painful and it's hard and it's unfair, it's because according to karma in a previous life, you were a bad person doing bad things. Again, I think most of us use it in that colloquial way of just like what goes around comes around or this like just cause and effect. And by the way, if you keep reading in Job, this was Job's friends. Like they don't use the word karma, but they're like, Job, like get off your high horse. You're sitting here like, I don't know what I've done wrong. I don't know what to repent of or confess. And they're like, Job, just, just say the thing. Like just tell us. Like everyone knows that bad things come to bad people. You're obviously a bad person. Just get it out there. That's karma. There's another view. Again, we're talking about reasons for suffering that is a, a wisdom view. And again, it may be in a, in a spiritual sense, like God is trying to tell me something or like I've literally heard many times, feels like the universe is trying to tell me something, like just this impersonal messenger that comes to you. Um, and, and many of you have probably experienced the reality of this, that there's that proverbial gut punch or wake up call where you're just living your life, you're just coasting, it's, it's a mediocre life, whatever, and then bam, something happens and you're like, whoa, there's so much for me to learn here about myself, 
about my priorities or, you know, about any number of things. Again, back to Pico Iyer in this article, The Value of Suffering, he says this, wise men in every tradition tell us that suffering brings clarity, illumination. I once met a Zen-trained painter in Japan in his 90s who told me that suffering is a privilege. It moves us toward thinking about essential things, and it shakes us out of short-sighted complacency. When he was a boy, he said it was believed you should pay for suffering. It proves such a hidden blessing. He goes on, occasionally I'll meet someone, call him myself, who makes the same mistake again and again, heedless of what friends and sense tell him, unable even to listen to himself. Then he crashes his car or suffers a heart attack, and suddenly calamity works on him like an alarm clock. By packing a punch that no gentler means can summon, Suffering breaks him open and moves him to change his ways. Or C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, put it like this. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And all I'm saying is many people say, what is the reason for suffering? I must have been coasting. I must have needed that wake-up call, that gut punch. What is the wisdom for me to learn? And again, I don't want you to hear me saying, like, this is wrong. You should not be looking for wisdom. I think the idea of cause and effect, the idea of karma, again, as we use it colloquially, the idea of wisdom, they're true. That happens, but they're reductionist. They're overly simplistic. God is doing more. So let's look about that. Let's, uh, let me give you like four or five things here that, that we know from Scripture. I'm going to read a, a handful of verses that show you these different truths. I invite you just to like jot down or take a note in your phone if one of these stands out to you or a couple of these stand out and you're like, that's, that's what I needed to hear. God's speaking to me. Okay. One biblical reason for suffering is sim- simply it is a natural consequence. Okay. A lot of things that are out there that are happening that are painful are not like God was punishing me. It's just like, that's just what happens. So Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Sowing and reaping, cause effect, it's a natural consequence. Even Romans six twenty three that says the wages of sin is death. I don't think the picture is so much like God, God is so angry and so judgmental and so vindictive and he's like, my wrath will be poured out and I want to punish you. He's saying the natural consequence of sin, the natural consequence of breaking yourself off from God and saying, I'll be my own God, the natural consequence of that is death because you're, you've separated yourself from light and from life. A second category that the Bible gives us is discipline. I encourage you to look at, like, really all of Hebrews 12. But here's a few others. Job chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And again, as I go through these, I want you to be thinking, like maybe, maybe the suffering in my life is discipline. Maybe God is doing it as a corrective in my life because something needs to change. 
And you may say, and I know what that is. Or you may say, I don't know, but Spirit of God, be gracious to counsel me. Be gracious to teach me. Show me what I need to learn. A third category, I'll use the big word testing. Testing has kind of a dual purpose, and they're not two different things. They're really two sides of one coin, in essence, that testing is both revealing and refining. So God often in Scripture gives someone something hard. We could call it a trial. We could call it suffering or pain. And what he's doing is God already knows their faith or lack thereof, so it's not a test for God. It's a test for that person to learn something about himself or herself. But God is also using this, and there's, there's a metaphor that's all throughout Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, of like a refiner's fire. You know, when you dig ore out of the ground in its natural state, it's a mix of all these different things and their impurities, and you, you superheat it in a crucible, and certain things like dross goes to the top, you can skim it off. Certain other impurities sink, and you can take them out, and you're left with something that is refined, Okay, so the Bible often talks in these kinds of terms. Look at the pain in your life. Maybe this is what God is up to in part, is that he's just making you more like himself. He's taking away things that you treasure. He's changing your priorities, but his heart is a heart of love to test, to reveal, to refine. So listen to a couple of these. James 1, 2 through 4 and 12. He says, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's weird. Like, count it all joy when life hurts. Well, how can I do that? And he says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Or 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, in this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's saying God is doing this work. God is, God is up to this in your life as you follow Jesus. Let him do this testing. Um, another reason that there's pain is simply the world is broken. And we don't need to seek a deeper explanation. Going to Genesis 3, remember when the first man and the first woman disobeyed God, and God comes down and talks to the serpent, Satan, that deceived, and he's like, on your belly you're going to crawl, and by the way, I'm coming one day to crush your head. But he goes on, and he says this to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And if it's like you're going through life and it just seems like, man, in this beautiful world, nothing seems quite right. Well, it's because it's not. We live in a broken place. And very often when it's just like, man, the weeds keep coming up in my yard. Like, what's God trying to tell me? Well, Weeds just come up. There, there may be nothing deeper than that, that you have to work the soil and toil and labor, and it feels futile because you pull all the weeds and they come right back, okay? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, made this more personal because part of the brokenness of our world is not just like a broken planet, but it's broken people. Hurting people hurt people. 
And I know it's cliche, but it's true. Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying this kind of pain, persecution, slander, being lied about, having opportunities that pass you by and someone else gets that thing. He's like, that's part of a broken life because people are broken. They turned against God. But I'd, I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't mention one more kind of suffering that the Bible talks about. And that is what I'll call, sorry, big word, inscrutable suffering. Inscrutable means it's impossible to know why. It's an enigma. It's a mystery. And you can look and look and look and be like, God, just show me the meaning, the purpose, the reason. And this is what Job is going through. You know, you can get all the way through the book to the very last chapters where God restores the fortune of Job, but he never cracks a window and is like, all right, Job, let me, lay, let me let you in on a little secret. So Satan swung by, and we had a conversation. This is going to be weird, but we had a conversation. I actually suggested you because you're so righteous, and you know, I was going to let him test your faith. Job doesn't get that explanation. To him, it was inscrutable. Like, God, why are you doing this? I don't know the reason sometimes. I do want to be clear with Job in particular God specifically says, Job, in all this, you haven't sinned with your mouth. Now your friends are messed up because your friends are coming to you. And, and, I'm and now I'm talking to you on this level because you, you will see other people around you. You will see friends. You will see family members. You will see coworkers suffering. And we can very often jump to, mm-hmm, karma. You know, she's getting it now. Come on, God. Like, like bring it on. Let that happen to her. Let that happen to him. And I think God is cautioning us against jumping to these conclusions in other people's lives and assigning a reason to their suffering that is beyond our ability to determine. Now, now when, when my kids are, are doing something and I'm like, stop that or you're going to be in timeout, and then they keep doing the thing and they're in timeout, then I can explain to them a reason. But isn't there so much suffering in the world? It's not like that, and you don't really know. You, you maybe wish you could know, but God very clearly and specifically with Job I mean, chapter 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He's a godly man, and God is not like, I'll get you because this is discipline, this is punishment, you need to change. Let me give you this, this big idea. In the midst of suffering, God may not give you an explanation, but he will always give you himself and a hope. And that's what Job gets, is he doesn't ever get an explanation, but he gets God, and he gets hope. So let me end with this, resources for suffering. Okay, let me give you a, a perspective, a purpose, a person, and a prospect. These are, the, these are your resources for dealing with suffering. I say, number one, a perspective. What I mean by perspective is other cultures, whether they use this technical term or not, they believe in like this yin and yang of like light and dark of good and bad. You know, it's Star Wars 
and, and it's like there, there's this cosmic evil and this cosmic good, and they're battling it out, and like no one knows who's going to win. What I want you to notice from Job's story is this, there's a very asymmetrical power. It is not God and Satan having a conversation and God's like, man, you are strong. And Satan's like, well, you are too. And let's lock horns and let's go at it because we don't know who's going to win. It's completely asymmetrical. God is like, you can do this, but you cannot do this. I'll let you go this far, but then you stop. I'm in control. You're not. So the other piece I want you to notice is uh, this is not like it's a cosmic battle. We don't know who's going to win. The biblical story is that sin and brokenness and suffering and pain are an intrusion into God's good world. So God makes the world. In Genesis 1, he calls it very good. That is a moral conclusion. The world I made is only good. So brokenness and pain weren't here at the beginning. They won't be there at the end. They can't overrule God's purpose for your life in the meantime. Romans 8, they cannot separate you. Affliction cannot separate you from the love of God in any way. And on the authority of Scripture, I'm telling you, God is against pain and suffering. First C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity says this, Confronted with cancer or a slum, the pantheist can say, If you could only see it from the divine point of view, you would realize this also is God. But the Christian replies, don't talk damn nonsense. Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, but that many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly that we put them right. And I'll illustrate that for you from John chapter 11, a chapter of the Gospels where one of Jesus' best friends has died Like God lets him, Jesus intentionally lets him die. Like the sisters are like, your friend is sick, come quickly, save his life. And it's like, and Jesus waited a few more days and then went knowing that Lazarus was dead. Um, If you know this story, Jesus is going to the tomb and John 11, you have the shortest verse in scripture, Jesus wept. But there's something else. Jesus weeps on the way to the tomb. There's a word that's used that Jesus is actually angry. It's like, it's a word you would use of a, of a horse, like an angry horse, you're tugging at the bit, the horse is frustrated, it's flaring its nostrils, and it's really, really angry at what's going on. So Jesus is going to the tomb, knowing full well what he's about to do, and he's weeping, and he's angry. Why? Because sin and brokenness and pain and suffering and death are intruders on his good world. Now he's going to overcome them and he's going to give us a little foretaste of the future that he has the authority and the power and the love to restore all things. But I want you to keep that perspective as you are dealing with something, especially that chronic sort of thing. You don't sit there in your mind as a follower of Jesus and think, I don't know who's ultimately going to win this battle for my life or my body or my mind. Jesus has already won. And again, on the authority of Scripture, Jesus weeps with you, Jesus is angry with you, and Jesus is against those things that are hurting you. That's an important perspective. Secondly, your second resource is a purpose. You're like, okay, sweet, here we go. Okay, you said sometimes it, you, you can't determine the purpose, but now, you know, you're a pastor, you spend a lot of time in the Word, you're going to give me the unique 
highly individualized purpose and reason behind what I'm going through right now. And I would say, I can't do that. I can't do that for you. I wish I could sometimes. I wish I could do it for myself. And I'll get very personal with this illustration because I'm on year 31 of chronic pain. Um, And it kind of went from like a few episodes a year with like compressed discs in my back and sciatic pain to like more times a year to now each time lasts longer to now like the past six weeks, it's like constant stabbing nerve pain. Let me just share with you a few things that 30 years of pain have done. As a pastor, your pain is not theoretical to me. It's not just a con- like, oh yeah, people have pain, they have chronic pain, it's really bad, it doesn't go away. It's concrete. The way you hurt is real to me. Because I hurt, I know, okay? I would say I'm not just sympathetic, like, oh, I'm sorry for you, genuinely sorry, I'm empathetic. Like, literally, I can feel that with you. I, I-, I love this in 2 Corinthians 1, where one of the things Paul is saying to the church is you will suffer affliction because you live in a broken world and all these reasons we've already looked at. And I'm I'm not telling you the exact reason for your affliction, but I can tell you this. When God ministers comfort to you in that affliction, now go and meet other people. Look for other people that are hurting. And you can say, I'm so sorry. I can feel that with you. Here's the way that God ministered comfort to me. I hope this is some encouragement to you. Can I help comfort you? Can I help take that burden off of you in the way that God and other people that he put in my life have done for me? Don't take this the wrong way, but one of the things that like decades of pain have done for me is I long for home. Like I have an amazing life, amazing family, amazing friends, amazing church. Like God has richly blessed us in this life. But that pain that doesn't go away, I mean, I was texting Marty the other day, and I was like, it won't hurt in heaven. And I don't mean like, so I'm going to take care of myself. I don't, I don't mean that at all. I mean, there is a deep longing for home. Like, I know one day this will be over, and in hindsight, like Paul said, it'll feel like a momentary light affliction that it doesn't feel like right now. Two more things that God's teaching me, and this is, I, I think this is biblical, that's why I'm sharing it. Let's go back to Job. Did you catch what Satan's accusation was when he's like, let me touch Job? He's making an accusation against Job, a godly man. He's also making an accusation against God, right? Because what he says is, Job worships you because you've given him a good life. Job worships you because you've given him prosperity. The accusation is, God, Job is a mercenary. You touch his body, and what? He'll curse you to your face. He will turn on you that fast because he's just a mercenary. And God, what does that say about you? You are not worthy of worship. You have to give your family like toys and treats and gifts and tricks so that they praise you. You take that away and no one would praise you. You're not worthy of it. And I hope that part of what my life does is say, no, God is worthy of worship, period. And there are good days and there are bad days and good and bad weeks and months. God is worthy of worship, period. And I also just trust that that God is doing things that I can't perceive. I trust 
Um, so in, in, in the big sense, if I'm summarizing all this, a couple things that, that God is doing, a purpose, is always dependence. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We felt like we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And if God uses suffering and pain in our lives to disabuse us of the foolish notion that we are self-sufficient ever, then that is a grace to take that painful time, that, that suffering season, and to realize, God, I could not do this without you, without your love, without your grace, without like just your hands holding me when it hurts so bad and it feels like everything's flying apart. So... When he brings healing and there are scars, can you remember that lesson? Today it's good, but I am equally dependent on God today in this goodness as I was in the suffering. God's doing that. That's a purpose, but also growth in Christ-likeness. And we've already touched on some of these that he's like, God is allowing you to suffer because do you believe that there's a part of your character that cannot be formed in just sitting on the beach? So, so go sit on the beach next week, okay? Enjoy Hawaii. Enjoy your vacation. Some of you are like out and you're on the, the video today because you're already traveling and enjoying whatever. That's great. Um, but my question was, do you believe there are parts of your character that cannot be formed outside of that crucible? Because that's what Scripture says. One more, Romans 5, 3, and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And how can you say that you have hope and a longing for home when you're like, man, I love it here. This world is my home. This is awesome. God's building you into the image of Jesus. And I say purpose. And can you believe with me as Job did that, that just because my tiny three-pound brain can't see, let alone imagine, a good purpose does not mean that God doesn't have one or many just because I don't see it yet. And some of you who are more mature, and I don't mean like age chronologically, I just mean you're mature in your faith, you would look back on a season of your life and you would say, in that moment, in that season, maybe even for years, I had no idea what God was doing. And now, even with this little bit of hindsight, I can see the goodness of God. Trust, hope, that God is up to something even when you can't see it. So that's a purpose. Thirdly, uh, a person. A resource for suffering a person. I would say, if you don't hear anything else I said this morning, please hear this right here. When you suffer, when it hurts, if you turn to God in trust, in faith, and maybe you already are, you're just living a life of faith, hear me, he's right there. God is right there with you. He hasn't checked out. The suffering is not like, oh, I must have drifted far from God. That could be, but you don't have to conclude that. You certainly don't conclude that on behalf of someone else. God may never give you a reason for your suffering. God may never give you an explanation. God will always give you himself. Okay? First note, he's, he's with you. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. So your, your heart's broken over something? 
says God is near to people like that. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For what? For you are with me. Secondly, the one who's with you is sovereign. And this is the big point of Job. So, so flip past like 35 chapters of his friends falsely accusing him. Like that's fun to read, come back to it sometime. But that's basically what those middle 35 chapters are all these conversations of friends that just come probably with good intentions. And they're like, Job, just turn, repent, you're evil. Turn, what's so wrong with you? And Job complaining back to them, you, you've got it all wrong. You don't understand. And, and then uh, I love it, like, God finally shows up. I mean, he's there, but he, he shows up conversationally in 38. Who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? It's like the best line in scripture. And he's like, who is this that's just running their mouth with explanations when you're oblivious, you are in the dark about what I'm actually doing? Like, shut up. And Still, God never gives Job a reason. But the one big lesson I take away from 38, 39, 40, 41 is the God that shows up says, I'm sovereign. You don't got this, but I got this. Where were you when I hurled the universe into existence? Where were you when I saw these things happen? You don't understand how I made stuff, how I sustain anything, so can you trust me as a sovereign God that I'm up to something good in your life that you don't understand right now? That's basically the lesson of Job. But third, don't miss this. So, so he's with you, period. But the God who's with you is sovereign, and the God who is with you is a suffering God. Okay, the, the God who's sovereign didn't stand at a distance and just say, just trust me, I'm sovereign over your thing. It's going to keep hurting for a while but I'm, I'm in control, that same sovereign God came to earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and says, let me suffer not only with you, let me suffer for you. So in the midst of your suffering and pain, only the Christian narrative gives you a God who suffers for you. A God that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know, one commentator says, anyone who would impugn the goodness of God for allowing sin and consequently evil and therefore pain and suffering must measure that charge against the teaching of Scripture that God himself became the victim of evil so that he and we might be victors over evil. We have a suffering God. When we look to Jesus and, and we are praying, and he's the one, Scripture says, he, he's our mediator to the Father, and he's, he's hearing our prayers, and he's taking them to Father, and I think part of that's like, uh, so they're complaining a lot because they're doing that lament thing that Matt told them was okay to do because it's in Psalm 80. They're doing that, and uh, Father, what they're saying is this, okay? But as he's mediating, he himself has suffered physically, emotionally, psychologically, relationally. He was killed. He was abandoned. And that's the God. That's, that is the greatest resource you have is that that God is forever present with you. Purpose person, finally, a prospect. And what I mean is a resurrection to a future hope. It's that home that I long for that I was telling you about. 
1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. I said that sin, pain, suffering, death, all of these things are intrusions on God's good creation, and he's against them. So the final chapter that will be written that we'll talk about next week of like, what's the destiny? How does this story end? Is Jesus himself returning and just saying, no more. Like, I wash the world clean, not only of sin, but of the brokenness, of the pain, of the suffering. I dry every tear. So in this moment, again, hear it again, in the midst of suffering, God may not give you an explanation. He will always give you himself and a hope. And we will look back, no matter how bad, how chronic that pain has been, how broken that relationship has been, whatever your thing is, we'll look back and say, it was a momentary light affliction that drew my heart closer to this God. Let me close with some words from Dostoevsky. He says, I believe like a little child that suffering will be healed and made up for that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened." He's speaking, one of the characters, one of the brothers is saying, I believe this thing is coming in this final prospect, this final hope that God will tie up all these loose ends. And again, we'll have been better for going through that suffering and pain than had we never lived this chapter that God intended for us to experience for our character development, for the strengthening and the refining of our faith. So... Look for God and look for that hope.